1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. in New York, and here is your top five at five. Recession warning sign. The market may be signaling something for the first time in 16 years. Is it reason to worry? UBS's Mark Paefley is here to weigh in. Walking it back, the White House trying to water down some off-script comments from the president about regime change in Russia. Locking down again, China hitting Shanghai with its biggest citywide lockdown in two years. Targeting billionaires, the Biden administration wants a new tax for the 1% of the top 1%. And real world drama at the Oscars last night, why the moment everybody is talking about has nothing to do with best picture. It is Monday, March 28th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us on this busy Monday. We'll get more on that Oscar story in moments. If you missed it last night, it may be one of the more bizarre and really scary scenes in live TV history. We'll have that for you in a few minutes. But right now, let's get your Monday money stock futures. They are slightly lower at the moment, down just about one-tenth of a percent. It's coming off some decent momentum for stocks. The Nasdaq and the S&P 500 up nearly 2% last week, even as oil prices move slightly higher. Oil, of course, has been leading the stock market lately. Last week, a little bit of a shift, but normally oil goes up, stocks go down, and vice versa. Right now, oil is down by a considerable amount off 5 bucks a barrel. That is likely on the China lockdown story we'll get more on in just a moment. Natural gas going the other way. It is higher After that big announcement from President Biden about helping supply Europe with more natural gas, perhaps 65% more than we currently export to Europe right now, is this the sign of some real support for oil and gas industry from the White House, even as CEOs are being called to Capitol Hill next week to be grilled on oil prices and climate change? We'll talk more about that, by the way. You're going to hear live from Toby Rice. He is the CEO of of EQT. They are the largest natural gas producer in America. He will be on here coming up in moments, an interview you will not want to miss. In the bond market, the 10-year yield is now above 2.5%, the two-year at 2.38%. That 10-year yield, by the way, has now more than doubled just since early August, just over seven months ago. That is an incredible move in rates. Oh, by the way, Mortgage rates, they're creeping higher as well. In fact, inching toward 5%. And in crypto, Bitcoin and Ether are both surging again this morning. Bitcoin up more than 2,000. Ether and Bitcoin, by the way, are up 16 and 13% over the past month coming in to this morning. So a lot of momentum in crypto, and they are all across the board higher again. Well, around the world, it was a mixed session overnight in Asia. Chinese tech stocks staging a comeback as well. China's market did rise, while Japan did fall. And Europe just getting its trading day started there, and they are mostly in the green. All the major averages, they are higher. We'll get more throughout the day, right here on CNBC. But right now, let us stick with a major developing story out of China. That nation beginning its largest and most extensive COVID lockdown in two years. It's apparently in order to conduct mass testing to try to control a new outbreak in Shanghai, that is a city with more than 25 million people, three times larger than New York City. Eunice Huyen joining us now with more on the, on the situation on the ground. Eunice, good morning.
2: Good morning, Brian. Shanghai is in a nine-day lockdown. So this lockdown is meant to mass test the city's entire population in two phases. So from today until Friday, April 1st, the east side of the city, is going to be restricted. And then from Friday into the following week, the west side of the city is going to go into lockdown. So what does that mean? That means that residents in those lockdown areas are going to have to stay in their homes unless there is a medical emergency or if they're an essential worker, a public transport and ride hailing services for those areas will be suspended and the non-essential companies and factories will be closed. So the staged lockdown comes after Shanghai officials head and all the way up until this weekend that the city wouldn't go into lockdown uh, because they said that the city is just too important for financial reasons, uh, manufacturing reasons, as a trade hub. But officials said that the situation has become so serious and the infection so large scale that they weren't able to stick with their original scheme, which was rolling lockdowns that were 48 hours and for very targeted and uh, looking at different residences. Um, Brian, but just to give you some perspective, uh, Shanghai reported 50 new cases and 3,450 asymptomatic cases. So, you know, China reacts very strongly 50. even when uh, the numbers would appear to be low. Yes. Uh,
1: 50 new cases out of... Twenty five million people. I mean, statistically, that's zero. You'd have to go .0000 whatever percent that might be. And, and I get the goal. I think the rest of the world has showed that this strategy is not going to work. It has not worked, at least in any other country. We'll see maybe China's different Uh, uh That's just the data, not opinion talking, by the way. What's the mood of the people? I understand the government wields a pretty strong hand in China, to say the least. Uh, Is there a point? I mean, is there frustration among the population where people have just said at some point are going to say this is this is enough?
2: Yes, there's definitely a lot of frustration. We're getting several reports and have been for the past week or so out of Shanghai that people are mass hoarding. There are others who have even been critical of China's vaccine policy, saying that, um, why don't you just bring in some of the Western vaccines that seem to be effective against this um, these latest types of variants? Um, not so widespread conversation, as you could imagine here, uh, given the the politics of it all. But there definitely is frustration. In, in fact, a one way that the um, companies have been trying to minim- uh, deal with this whole situation is that they're actually calling in their staff and have been as of this weekend to live at their office for the next four days, at least, or for however long the situation is going to go on. So we're seeing a lot of reports of people bringing in sleeping bags, you know, towels, a company saying that they're going to, you know, cook up a lot of instant noodles for them, provide some food. Um, There's some companies that are the bigger ones that have offices on the west as well as the east side. So those ones are are creating working setups so that they could operate. But obviously, there's a lot of disruption, even though the officials say that they are going to try to pursue President Xi Jinping's policy of minimizing the economic cost.
1: And and the port is still open if you care about the supply chain, which, of course, global Mm -hmm. markets do. But just to wrap it up, I want to make that clear. China is basically saying you can yeah. go to work and be around all of your coworkers, right? Even if you're in a mask, obviously you probably were asymptomatic before. It's a microscopic virus, whatever your view on that is. But you can't do anything else. I mean, these policies, Eunice, to just somebody logical, don't seem to make a lot of sense. But that said, it's, it's their decision. Uh, finalize it with this, to, so our viewers yeah. understand the, the the vaccine that is being used in China is different. Than the mm-hmm. Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, you just referenced that, correct? And there's a there's a belief that maybe uh, I think it's called well, only Sinovac Chinese vaccines are allowed well. here. Yeah.
2: Right. Right. So so um so the Chinese vaccines are the only ones allowed here, and so far, uh, when you look at the effectiveness, uh, they haven't necessarily been as effective against uh, the Omicron outbreak and variant as the Western ones have. So that's where you're starting to see some frustration because people do read uh, some of the other reports that, you know, that show like. So, for example, like New Zealand has been effective or, you know, the U.S. is in the U.S. There's been much more effectiveness against against the Omicron um, variant with the American vaccine. So people are are aware. I mean, it's not as though every single person in the country is aware because of censorship, but it's still something that that is uh, frustrating people here.
1: It's got to be. And and by the way, much of the world is going toward maskless on airplanes. We might be that way in just a couple of weeks. And to see what's going on in China, I know it's got to take an incredible mental and emotional toll on the people as well. Yunus Yun, thank you very much. COVID zero policies haven't worked anywhere. We'll see if they they work in China. All right. Now to Washington, D.C., with the White House trying to clarify and maybe walk back some of President Biden's comments in Warsaw, Poland this weekend, where and. Apparently, some off script talk, the president suggested the U.S. was interested in a regime change in Moscow. This is Ukraine and Russia kick off fresh peace talks with the fighting now entering its second month. NBC's Bree Jackson joining us now with more on both. Good morning, Bree.
3: Good morning, Brian. Well, President Biden has stepped up his criticism of Vladimir Putin in recent days, and some warn that the president's recent comments could further escalate tensions with Russia. President Biden says he's not calling for a regime change in Russia. Mr. President, were you calling for regime change? No. After making this comment about Vladimir Putin during a fiery speech in Poland Saturday.
0: For God's sake, this man cannot remain in power.
3: Secretary of State Antony Blinken reiterating the administration's stance.
0: We do not have a strategy of regime change in Russia or anywhere else for that matter.
3: Republicans warn the president's remarks could further escalate tensions.
0: It plays into the hands of the Russian propagandists and plays into the hands of Vladimir Putin.
3: Democrats stress it's up to the Russian people to decide who is in power and that the U.S. is focused on defending Ukraine against Putin's attacks.
0: He is uh, depleting uh, critical resources from his own nation for this Uh, awful war. So I I just don't see how this ends well for him.
3: U.S. officials say Russian forces are struggling to make progress in the first month of the conflict, forcing them to scale back on their military goals. But there are concerns that battlefield failures will lead to even more aggression from the Kremlin. There are no red
4: lines for Putin and his cronies.
3: Ukrainian leaders say they are ready to negotiate an end to the war, but won't surrender. Peace talks between Russia and Ukraine continue in Turkey today. Brian.
1: NBC's Bree Jackson in Washington. Bree, thank you very much. All right, so while the White House works on those comments, his administration continues to hammer Russia with sanctions. They will reportedly now announce a new series this week targeting Russian companies they say provide goods and services for the military and intelligence services on the impact of the sanctions bring in daniel tannenbaum partner and the america's anti-financial crime leader at oliver wyman dan good to have you back on the sanctions they are tough russia arguably the most sanctioned large country at least in the world but do they go far enough
0: Thanks, Brian. And the other thing to bear in mind beyond the sanctions, you have over 450 Western businesses who have self-sanctioned, who have de-risked and voluntarily exited Russia, even going further than what the sanctions have obliged them. That being said, you still have the situation where energy is largely exempted from the sanctions that have been put in place thus far, which is fueling funding uh, this invasion into Ukraine.
1: Is there any kind of new specific sanction? One, we or Europe do not have on yet. Maybe a direct sanction of oil and natural gas by Europe, something they they have not done and do not want to do. Is there something we can do, which would really sort of be the vice grip on Putin?
0: And those energy sanctions really are that further tightening of device grip on Putin. There's certainly some disagreements between the EU and U.S. on the scale of Russian energy sanctions. I think you may begin to see, obviously, with the deal that was announced last week with the U.S. supplying LNG to Europe, which is not an immediate fix to the situation and replacing Russian energy, you may see sanctions that reduce the ability to buy across Europe. Um, limitations on purchasing of Russian oil and LNG. The other lever that hasn't been thrown is secondary sanctions. Secondary sanctions, which we've talked about before, essentially force foreign companies, foreign countries, from doing business with the target of sanctions or the U.S. or other Western allies, but not both. So for countries like China and India that continue to buy you could have a situation where they're forced yep. to choose through those sanctions, although they have a limited track record of actually being enforced.
1: If, if, quickly, Dan, eventually Putin will be gone, whether and how that, that is going to be left up to history. Uh, do you believe the sanctions, though, will be left on even if the war ends as long as Putin is in power?
0: Yeah, I mean, the U.S. doesn't have a great track record of regime change historically, but these sanctions will remain on for some time to come. If President Putin were to be out of power today, if the Russian military were to leave Ukraine today, these sanctions will be in place for some time to come, essentially erasing the decades of economic growth that we've seen in Russia.
1: Really tragic for the people, by the way, of Russia who have done nothing wrong. This is Putin's war. Daniel Tannenbaum, Oliver Wyman, Daniel, thank you very much. All right, we've got a lot more to do on this Monday when we come back. Is it a recession warning sign or maybe just an odd bond market coincidence? UBS's Mark Hayfully will weigh in. Plus, the White House preparing a new billionaire tax. We're live in D.C. with what the ultra-wealthy could soon expect. Later, history at the Oscars, but not in the way you might think, as Will Smith hits Chris Rock live on stage, and it wasn't an act. We're back right after this.
5: What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
4: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.
1: Welcome back, and good morning, morning, everybody. We are continuing to watch not only the overall markets, but the bond market as well. We even have a a market alert for you. See that? What's been a truly incredible move in rates, not only are long-term yields like the 10-year surging, look at the five-year treasuries compared to the 30-year bond. This kind of move could lead to an inversion. What does that mean? You're probably hearing a lot about that lately. Well, If you're new to the markets, it's where shorter-term yields, maybe the two-year or three-month T-bill, go higher than longer yields. And in the past, at least, that has served as some kind of a recession warning sign. So what do we make of it now, if indeed it happens? Mark Hayfley is Chief Investment Officer at UBS Global Wealth Management. Mark, good to have you back on again. Uh, Do you think it will happen? It's getting close, and if it does, is that necessarily some kind of canary in a coal mine for a recession or simply more of the way people have been buying one bond over another?
6: Yeah, it's not necessarily going to point to a recession in this case. You know, we have a lot more going on in the economy than we did 50 years ago when this was perhaps more of a reliable uh, signal and, and by more I mean we have you know monetary intervention that we didn't have back then. We have fiscal intervention that we ha- didn't have going on back then. And we have you know China's economy and Europe's economy and the US economy uh, kind of three cylinders instead of one now.
1: You know, you look at everything that the global economy and the American economies really, Mark, are, are dealing with right now. Let's walk through it very quickly. Inflation's out of control and going to get worse. The Federal Reserve is aggressively going to tighten rates. Inter- By the way, the bond market has already done the Fed's job for it, which is kind of what we just talked about, whatever the Fed ends up doing. You've got obviously Putin's war in Ukraine. And oh, yes, the, the, the second biggest economy in the world is locking down its biggest city over 50 COVID cases. I mean, the the amount of stuff this market and investors are up against right now is truly incredible.
6: Absolutely. And, you know, how was the market responding to this cocktail of uncertainty last week? Well, it was sending stocks higher, uh, in part because... Th- there's so few alternatives to equities right now uh, because of the factors you mentioned like inflation and higher rates. But you know, the way that we're thinking about this is focus on the areas where there's less uncertainty. And for us, that's around commodities and energy related equities, because we think that these sanctions are gonna remain in place Whatever happens with the peace talks, which we certainly hope makes some progress because yeah. this is a terrible humanitarian tragedy. And then the other thing, of course, is, as you mentioned, the inflation. And that's why we're looking at things like financial stocks and U.S. senior loans. And we're also starting to see some value in parts of the investment grade uh, bond market.
1: Yeah. And what you said is a very important point, Mark, that we just talked about in the previous segment with Dan Tannenbaum, which is even if the war ends and let's all hope and pray it ends tomorrow, even if it ends, whether or not Putin stays in power, those sanctions are going to remain as long as he is. And that's not a political view. I'm sure UBS has its own house view, but that's just a recognition of his now role as a war criminal in the world. So I would imagine you're talking to your clients and saying, listen, if and when the war ends, don't expect inflation, I assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, to simply go away.
6: Well, you know, there's two parts to that. And I think first, the historical record shows that sanctions tend to be very sticky, uh, regardless of, of these outcomes. But also what's supporting the commodity complex and the energy equities is we do see a stronger world economy as things come out of covid uh into the back half of the year and that means that you know it can be a little weaker because of some of the things that have gone on and and maybe some demand destruction around higher energy costs but the reality is is that the demand for oil and energy is going to be strong into the back half of the year so that will be supportive on uh, on the other commodities you know the it's not just the the Ukrainian wheat crisis. It's the fact that we're in drought in most parts of the world. So so the demand picture is also uh, supporting this into the back half of the year. Now, uh, you know, on the inflation. Commodities, picture, yeah. Yeah. Com- commodities ahead, are supported. Yeah. Commodities are supported and the energy equities. The inflation picture. We are hopeful still that some of the inflation pressure will back off in the second half of the year, and that will give the Fed a little more flexibility.
1: But commodities and energy equities remain the place to be. Mark Haefeli, we appreciate you coming on, getting up early for us. Thank you very much. You have a wonderful day, Mark. Thanks. All right, on deck. The president hoping to ship more American natural gas to Europe. Is this a pat on the back that the fossil fuel industry has been waiting for? We've got a worldwide exchange exclusive with Toby Rice, the CEO of EQT, the largest natural gas producer in America, his take on that landmark EU deal for more U.S., LNG and more. Stick around.
4: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
1: All right, welcome or welcome back and good Monday morning. If you missed it last night, it's the moment that everybody is talking about from the Academy Awards. And it has nothing to do with Apple's Coda, by the way, well-deserved. My family and I have watched it three times, Coda taking home best picture. It was all about Will Smith losing his cool and hitting host Chris Rock live on stage over a joke gone wrong. NBC's Francis Rivera's in New York with all your headlines this morning. An odd scene, Francis. Yeah, a
7: really odd scene. A lot of people thought it was a joke. They're like, what's happening here? But Brian, it was a real deal. The slap yeah. that was heard around the world late in the Oscars. Comedian Chris Rock told a joke about actress Jada Pickett Smith, starring in G.I. Jane 2, because her head is shaved. Well, she has spoken publicly in the past about experiencing hair loss due to alopecia. Well, that joke didn't sit well with Jada's husband, Will Smith, who went up, walked on stage, and slapped the comedian.
3: <laughs> oh wow! Wow!
0: Will Smith just smacked the out of me. Keep my, Th- out your wow, yes. it Keep my wife's name out your mouth.
1: Wow, dude. Yeah. It was a GI Jane joke. Keep my wife's name out your mouth. I'm going
7: to. So, wow, people were shocked, and the tone of the whole night changed right after that moment. With the building anticipation to the Best Actor award, which Smith won for King Richard, and in a very tearful speech, he talked about being a defender of his family.
8: I'm being called on in
0: my life to love people and to protect
8: people and to be a river to my people. I want to apologize to the academy. I want to apologize to all my fellow nominees.
7: Well, this year's Oscar saw a number of historical wins when it comes to who won, who lost. Ariana DeBose won Best Actress in a supporting role for her performance in West Side Story, making her the first queer black woman to do so. Also, actor Troy Kotzer became the first deaf man to win the Academy Award for his role in CODA, which you just said, Brian, that you love so much. Jane Campion became the third woman to win the Best Director Oscar for The Power of the Dog. Other notables here, though, three-time nominee Jessica Chastain won Best Actress for The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Dune took a total of six awards including best cinematography and coda won three oscars including best picture making it the first film produced by a streaming service to win in the category brian uh but yeah the echo sounds of that slap it literally is everything and all that everyone's talking about when they wake up this morning and you know what the oscars didn't actually air it when it was live they were able to clip that and delete you know and and, and censor it out But the uncensored version is everywhere online, which I'm sure people are Googling right when they wake up.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, listen, Will Smith has talked openly about some of the marital issues that he's had. That's not, I mean, that's a, there's many magazine articles about that. Listen, kudos to Chris Rock. I mean, Chris Rock held it together. He literally, you know, it was a slap, but it was a hard hit. And he obviously. You know, held it together and and tried to keep going. And what was just a very bizarre thing. But on a happier note, if you haven't seen it, for, have you seen Coda, Francis? No,
7: no. But it is definitely on the list. Eyes of Tammy Fay. Loved all the other ones. Power of the Dog. I want to see. But Coda. I, I'm glad you're saying it's a family friendly film because I'm definitely going to get all this into it. It is
1: too. It, it, my 18 year old enjoyed it. My my seven year old enjoyed it. it. It's a fa- it's what movies should be. It's small budget. It's beautifully acted. It's a beautiful story, and if you don't have a couple of little tears, happy tears at the end, I'm not sure I can do anything for you. We've watched it literally three times, Francis. Uh, it is just a terrific film. It's and the by the way, I think its her name is Amelia. The, the, the act, the main actress, uh, she is a super star. Francis, thank you. Sure thing. All right, ahead. All right, back to business. The UK preparing sweeping new sets of regulations when it comes to crypto cnbc exclusive report straight ahead dow futures they're up a bit oil prices down we're back right after this the markets and stocks looking to keep the recent momentum going as investors gearing up for a huge week of market moving economic data futures though they are slightly lower on this monday morning Oil is also lower. It's on another China COVID lockdown. This is one major bank warns of a spike and crash scenario for crude. The CEO of U.S. natural gas producer EQT is here to lay out what he sees ahead for the energy landscape both here and abroad. And the Biden administration taking on America's billionaires, looking to usher in a new minimum tax on all their wealth. It is Monday, March 28th. And this is Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Well, welcome or welcome back. It's about 5.30 on Monday. Thanks for joining us. I'm Brian Sullivan, everybody. Let's get right now to the markets and your money. Stock futures, they are mildly lower. Across. I mean, I hate to even say that. It's technically accurate, but uh, look at that. We're setting the Dow basically up a little bit, S&P down a little bit. At this point, flip a coin. Well, markets can go anywhere they want today. So let's call it mixed to flat on a Monday. How about that? Coming off two decent weeks for the equity markets and really is what has been a tough year. In bonds, the benchmark 10-year yield, it continues to tick higher. That yield has now more than doubled just since early August. Think about that, doubling in just over seven months. Really an incredible move in the bond market and rates. You may not care about bonds. You probably care about mortgages and real estate. And by the way, mortgage rates, they've been rising. They'll also likely keep rising in the weeks ahead. The average 30-year fixed rate mortgage now at about 4.5%. It was just over 3% for much of last year. So think about that gain. Really a 50% jump in mortgage rates in just a couple of weeks. All right, now let's get more on oil and natural gas. Oil really has been leading stocks lately. You've probably noticed oil goes up. Stocks tend to go down and vice versa. Right now, oil is down a lot off about 10 bucks a barrel. That's because those increasing lockdowns in China which, by the way, just announced a rolling sort of two-stage lockdown of Shanghai, 25 million people over what Yunus Yun said was 50, 50 COVID cases. Oil right now is down just about 4%. By the way, that could ease some, some pricing pressure that we have seen lately. Bank of America, by the way, out with a very interesting note over the weekend on oil. They see a, quote, spike and crash scenario for oil this year and next. The analysts at B of A, they really have three different scenarios for Brent crude this year. All of them are bullish. They've either got $130, $150, or $200 a barrel for Brent crude, in part because they say that capital discipline and ESG considerations have slowed down a supply response. But B of A also believes that prices are likely to fall next year, possibly back to $75 a barrel as central banks raise rates and consumers, particularly those in Europe. Simply hit the breaking point, by the way, in parts of France and other parts of Europe, the price of a gallon of gasoline is nearing or at 10 U.S. dollars per gallon. All right, let's stay right there with energy in last week's landmark deal, at least agreement, to help the European Union wean itself off of Russian fossil fuels. The U.S. agreeing to help boost its exports of liquefied natural gas to Europe, by around 65% from current levels to 2030, by 2030. Joining us now is somebody right at the center of that agreement who will likely pay a major role in accomplishing that feat. That is Toby Rice. He's the CEO of EQT. They are the largest natural gas producer in the nation. Toby, really appreciate you coming on. A very important time and an important topic. Uh, first off, this is kind of a handshake agreement. Do you believe it will actually occur and the U.S.? we will start exporting a lot more natural gas to Europe.
8: Yeah, Sully, thanks for having me here. Uh, we look at this, uh, this, this announcement on Friday really as the first step towards achieving uh, our goals of providing energy security to the world. Um, Biden's posture on, on saying that the United States is gonna play a major role in delivering natural gas to provide security for, for Europeans is a good first step. This is the political signal that we, that we needed to see. Um, but what can we do here in the United States? It's actually a, a lot more than what's been announced. The, to put these numbers in, in American terms, you know, we're, we're talking in the short-term, increasing export capacity by, by about BC, 1.5 BCF a day in the short-term in 22, and then about 5 BCF a day um, through 2030. What can we do here in the United States? You can pump those numbers up by tenfold. We think that we have, to, we have the capacity to increase our LNG exports by over, by over 50 BCF a day. And when you step back and you look at the world, not just Europe, you realize that natural gas demand is going to soar. By 2030, there's going to be an increase of about 40 BCF a day. The United States, U.S., LNG needs to be able to step up and serve those volumes.
1: Well, well can they? I mean, can the industry accomplish those types of goals? And even if you can get it out of the ground, Toby, uh, can you get that natural gas to market, given, obviously, the reluctance to build or permit new pipelines?
8: Well, first off, let's look at the resource that we've had. And we did a very detailed analysis on this. We posted this on our website called Unleash US LNG. First off is looking at the resource. We've got the resource. Just with everything that we've already explored today, we have the ability to increase uh, gas production here in the United States by over 50 BCF a day and hold it there for decades. So we've got the resource. Really, the question comes in, can we get it to market? And this has been the challenging part. Um, For us to achieve this plan, we just need to do one thing. Um, and that's just build pipelines and energy facilities faster than we've ever done it before. Now, I will step back and say, in less than six years, the United States has become the world leader in being an energy exporter. So these are things that we've all done before. We just need some more cooperation to make it happen. And a lot of the opposition to our efforts, um, and, and despite the opposition, we've still been able to do amazing things and we will continue to do amazing things. The opposition has come because of concerns about the environment. And this is actually the best. This is the best part of our plan is when you unleash US LNG, you're unleashing the biggest green initiative on the planet because this natural gas will be used to replace foreign coal, which is the biggest source of emissions around the world. And the impact of this, Sully, is absolutely tremendous. Unleashing US LNG would have the equivalent of electrifying every vehicle in the United States, putting solar panels on every home in America and also doubling the U.S. wind capacity. This initiative is so big that it could do all three of those, the environmental impact of all three of those things combined. It's absolutely the biggest green initiative on the planet.
1: This is what I think people need to understand, and I tweeted out over the weekend, Toby, is that it's not a this or that. It's all in because population growth, demand for power, demand for electricity. Now, you can say the demand side is wrong and we should all cut back. That's a different argument. But if current demand trends continue where they're going, which later in the show, I'll show you something where everybody's moving and why we're going to need a lot more power. The the demand for everything is going to be needed, is it not? And to your point, you've got Italy firing up old coal plants, Germany doing the same thing. China, they don't care about the climate. They're cranking more coal now than ever before. That's why right now is such a critical time.
8: Absolutely correct, Sully. And, and I'll give you another stat that will, will – when I saw this, it really surprised me, and I think it's going to surprise you as well, uh, just to show the critical importance of energy. You know, since this conflict began in Ukraine, you would think and, – and you hear the push for the world to, to shut off and restrict Russian imports or Russian exports. Russia's actually selling uh, more energy now, about 25 percent more energy, now than they were before the conflict began. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. And when we look at the need for energy around the world – um, I think there's been a lot of focus on zero carbon solutions like solar and wind, and, and those are great things. But they're not a- able to offset the biggest source of emissions around the world. And just in the last 12 months, to put this in perspective, in the last 12 months, emissions from coal have risen over 500 million tons uh, of CO2 per year. That that amount of uh, emissions completely eliminates yeah. all of the benefits that we've done from solar and wind. Over the last 15 years, if you care about the environment, you need a heavyweight solution to offset a heavyweight problem, which is foreign coal. That heavyweight solution is United States LNG.
1: Well, and also so many things in renewables, fiberglass, carbon fiber for the turbines, aluminum for the solar panels rely on natural gas to produce the power to make these things. So actually higher prices hurt. Renewables Very quickly, Toby, uh, we're importing natural gas into Boston Harbor from Trinidad uh, because they didn't have enough to make power this winter. You guys have giant natural gas fields pretty doggone close to New England. You think we'll ever change our pipeline policy or are we going to rely on on imported LNG into Boston and, and literally burning wood and dung? That's true, by the way, to make power a 100 miles from where your oil, your gas fields are.
8: Yeah. So you're talking about n- New England. You know, you're talking to talking about where my mom lives, where I grew up. I certainly hope that that we will take a signal or learn from what we're seeing in Europe and realize, you know, energy security is not just con- in, in the lack of it is not just confined to Europe. You see other places around the United States where you, you see major si- signals of yep. energy insecurity, like in New England, where January 31st, they were paying around $30 for their natural gas. That's uh, it, it's very it makes you scratch your head because we've got the biggest gas field in the world, less than 200 miles away. We, and there's the good news is there's about seven BCF a day of pipeline projects that have been put on the table um, that would serve that would serve New England. And also yeah. not just New England, yeah. southeastern part of the United States, their energy security is being challenged. Um, MVP is another pipeline project that can get approved It's over 90, 90 percent complete. Less than six months of construction, we can get that pipeline built and bring energy security to the southeastern portion of the United States.
1: And we are learning, sadly, that energy security is security. A 250% jump in wholesale electricity rates in January in Boston over last year. Toby Rice, EQT, appreciate you coming on. Toby, thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks a lot. All right. Coming up, President Biden looking to unveil a new plan taking on taxes for the ultra, ultra rich Alon Moy is here to lay out just how much they, maybe some of you watching are billionaires, who knows, might be paying Worldwide Exchange back in a moment. All right, welcome or welcome back. Stock futures, they're flat on this Monday morning, so let's pivot and talk taxes. President Biden is set to take on America's very wealthiest and how much they're paying or maybe not paying in taxes. Alon Moy joining us now with details on the White House plan to propose a new minimum tax on All the billionaires out there, Alon, good morning.
5: Well, good morning, Brian. This is part of President Biden's budget in which he will lay out his vision for investing in America that is paid for in large part by the wealthy. A White House official tells me his proposals are focused on three key priorities, fiscal responsibility, safety and security and building a better America. Now, on the first point, the administration said its budget will actually reduce the deficit by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. That's partly through lower spending as the federal government's pandemic programs end and more revenue from a strong economy. But Biden is also proposing to raise taxes on the rich. The White House is calling this a billionaire's income tax, but it would actually hit those worth $100 million or more with a 20 percent minimum tax on all their income, including 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 unrealized gains. Now, the administration estimates this would raise $360 billion over a decade, Only the top 0.01 percent of households would be affected, and more than half the revenue would come from those worth more than a billion dollars. Now, that would help pay for a major increase in spending on security at home and abroad, from the military to community policing to gun violence. The budget will also aim to address rising costs, particularly of prescription drugs. Now, this is all clearly a White House wish list, but, Brian, it does set the agenda in Washington for the policies that Democrats will pursue for the rest of the year.
1: All right, what's the likelihood of this actually occurring? By the way, I should have asked Toby Rice on in the previous segment. I believe he is a billionaire. (laughs) (laughs)
5: Well, you know, this has been proposed before. There was a similar proposal from Senator Ron Wyden, who's the head of the Senate Finance Committee, back when the discussions around Build Back Better were still alive. That proposal did not get very far. Democrats were split over it. And over on the House side, Democrats were pursuing a different proposal, which would have put a 3 percent surtax on millionaires. So even within Democrats, there is discussion about whether or not this is feasible because it is so new, so untested, it's going. To take a lot of work for members to even understand what this is.
1: Yeah, we'll see if this one can get through. And what's been a been a tough time, Elon Moy. We appreciate your time this morning. Big new possible tax coming along. Have a great day. Thank you very much. All right, folks. Short break, and we're back with Stephanie Link right after this. All right, welcome and welcome back, and good Monday morning, everybody. If you look at stock futures, they're not doing a whole lot. They're flat to maybe slightly down. Who knows? But it doesn't matter because we have a big week this week. In fact, there is a lot of economic data coming out. You've got consumer confidence numbers coming out tomorrow. You've got real GDP along with personal income and spending on Wednesday. You've got the Jolt survey tomorrow. You've got the monthly jobs number on Friday. Finally getting some real economic data after inflation has taken a bite. Joining us now is Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Strategist at Hightower and, of course, CNBC superstar and contributor, Uh, the one I did not mention, Stephanie, which is boring and normally doesn't get a lot of attention is the PCE price deflator or whatever that comes out. I think it's on Thursday. Uh, That's the first real inflation gauge we're going to get since the second leg of inflation hit after, of course, uh, the invasion uh, of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin. What are you watching the most closely this week?
9: Well, yeah, no. And thanks for having me, Brian. The PCE deflator is certainly important, because that's what the Fed looks at. And it's going to be coming in very strong, probably something like 6.4 percent annualized. So that is way higher than what the Fed wants it to be. But it's not just the PCE deflator. It's obviously, we've talked about CPI, PPI, unit labor costs are also very, very strong. The the, the nonfarm payroll number, I know the headline for, for jobs is the nonfarm payroll number itself, but the wage component is also very important. And I think that's going to be pretty hot at about 5.5 percent. Remember, last month, it came in at 5.1%, which was less than expected. But, but that was because you had a shift to travel and leisure workers, which are lower paid versus technology and utility. So that's going to be a big uh, number to watch this week, for sure.
1: Yeah, it is. And I, and I don't want, you know, obviously you got two legs. Inflation, by the way, was red hot before Putin decided to go in with his his unwinnable war in Ukraine. Obviously, that just sort of lit the match under it. So I think These numbers are going to be so important to the Federal Reserve. But, Stephanie, does the market, I mean, the bond market, no offense to the Fed or our coverage of the Federal Reserve at all, but hasn't the bond market already done the job of the Federal Reserve in some ways? I mean, 10-year yield has doubled in seven months.
9: Yeah, but inflation is also just rampant and it's everywhere. Right. So um, and I don't even think if they were if the Fed were to raise rates eight times, which is what the bond market is now pricing in. I don't think that slows GDP growth materially. It will to some extent, but not materially. And I don't think it's going to do anything in terms of inflation. Supply chains are a big problem and a big cause for inflation that has to get fixed. And we're going to get micron this week in terms of earnings. Let's listen to what they have to say about the supply chains. But I don't think it's going to to be pretty unfortunately
1: and that but that is but is that a company you like micron you're just throwing that name out randomly on a monday morning stephanie
9: I'm throwing it out there randomly. No, I, it, look, it's very, very cheap. It's a value cyclical, ultimately cyclical company. Um, and uh, and they've done a very good job in terms of execution. But I prefer other semiconductor companies like an NXPI or a Broadcom, which uh, have more steady businesses, if you will, rather than these up and down peaks to troughs kind of numbers. But, but Micron will be a good macro tell on demand, on memory demand, and, and again, on the supply chains.
1: Yeah. And, you know, with all due respect to the all important monthly jobs number, which comes out on Friday, I think the JOLTS number, Job Opening Labor Turnover Survey comes up tomorrow. Far more interesting. It shows how many open jobs. 11.4 million. It feels like we're at peak employment. I know it sounds weird to say that, but I the unemployment claims aren't going, they're going down. By the way, lowest level since 1969. Is this one reason you like a paychecks, Stephanie, simply because the job market is yeah. so, I mean, insanely hot right now?
9: Yeah, and they will benefit from higher interest rates as well, um, from interest income. But outsourcing has been on fire. Just look what Accenture told us uh, uh, two weeks ago, right? I mean, they just blew it away, raised guidance again. Um, And so I think the only problem with paychecks, Brian, is it's trading at 35 times earnings. And this is a market that doesn't really want 35 times earnings. It's more of a value kind of a market. That being said, last week was quite interesting because growth did outperform value uh, for the second straight week. So there could be some continued mean reversion on the growth trade because you know year to date value has outperformed growth by 900 basis points. So you could, you could see uh, growth may, uh, playing catch up, if you will. Quite frankly, I've been adding on the technology side in my yep. portfolio. I've been underweight for the last year. So I think that's really an area to watch, uh, especially um, you know, when you get companies like Micron and Paychex. We'll get some good data points yep. this week.
1: Well, big earnings, the comments going forward are going to be key for Micron, paychecks, and others, a lot of inflation data, a busy week. Stephanie Link, we love having you on. Thank you. Appreciate it, Steph. We'll see you soon. All right, folks, that does it for us here on a very busy Worldwide Exchange. We're going to be back tomorrow, same time, same bat channel. Squawk and the gang are picking up your coverage next. We will see you in 23 hours. Have a great day wherever you may be. Take care. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern, only on CNBC.
4: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery,